why why is life so hard let me just say it a little differently why is life so blasted difficult now maybe you want to use a different word than blasted but what complicates marriage so much why is it that you go through high school and you start meeting guys or girls, whatever, and, and it just gets messy fast? Why is it when you look at your family and you say, this is really a messy deal, right? We just go on and on and on. What we're going to look at today is God wants to speak directly into those questions. He doesn't want any one of us to walk out of here without understanding what in the world is going on. If you have your Bible, would you open up with me to Romans chapter 3? Now as you're turning there or turning on your device or pulling up the scripture, let me just say this, at Fox Valley Church, we take seriously the Word of God, but not only just picking passages we want to teach, just choosing some plums here and there, what we want to do is study books of the Bible, because that's how God chose to deliver His Word. So there's a place to study the entire Word of God, studying a letter like the book of Romans. So let me just pick up where we are as we continue our studies. It says in verse 9, I'm picking up Romans 3, verse 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Father, as we study your word this morning, we make no pretense here. We need your spirit. We call on your Holy Spirit to open our eyes. Let us see what we don't normally see. Let us look into the spiritual world. Let us get a glimpse of the devastation that has come upon this world. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we looked last time at our series, uh, our passage, if we look back at the beginning, Paul was asking the question, well, what advantage does the Jew have? That's chapter 3, verse 1. What advantage then is there to being a Jew? And, and you remember Paul then said, well, there's great advantage. And he says, you know, that 
things like being of the tribe of or the nation of Israel, right? That God, out of all the nations in the world, He chose Israel, right? He didn't choose the other nations. He made a choice. And what the Bible makes really clear is that He didn't choose them because they were all that. He didn't choose them because they were better than the other nations. He didn't choose them because they were wiser than the other nations. He didn't choose them on any basis other than He made that sovereign decision. He then, Paul made clear, that the Word of God had been entrusted to them. When all the other nations are trying to figure out, is there a God? What kind of God is He? Are there multiple gods? God says, I'm going to reveal myself to you. I'm going to let you know who I am and how to walk with me. I'm going to let you know how to have a relationship with the only true and living God. And so Paul makes that really clear. And we saw that last week. And then we also saw that God had given them a sign or a seal, an external sign. And we looked at this issue of circumcision. And then we expanded it to even the point of the Christian church. Well, now Paul is moving us back into this place and helping us ask a question. And that is, what shall we conclude then? Right? Are we Jews any better off? And you say, well, wait a minute. He just said you were because you were a chosen nation and all these things. And what Paul is doing here is he's now going to bring us into some complementing truths. And so what I'd like to do is bring out what is simply a summary of what Paul says. All people are under sin. All people are under sin. Now there's the word, right? We, we, we see it. We see it as we look at this passage. Paul says, all of us are under the power of sin. There's the word. That dirty little word. There's lots to talk about when you talk about sin. We could take some time this morning and we could go from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation and look at all the ways the Bible talks about that three-letter word. Sometimes the Bible will talk about it as just missing the mark. Now sometimes we say missing the mark and we start thinking, well, like, like a... Uh, a woman at the, the free throw line and shooting a basket, does she intentionally miss? But when you start looking at missing God's ideal, there's intentionality with a lot of it. Sometimes the Bible uses a Hebrew word that's more, more idea of something that's twisted or perverted. It's in opposition to what is well-formed in contrast to something that is healthy. Sometimes the Bible in the Old Testament will use a word like rebellion, that we stand against God's kingdom. It's a political word, and it picks up other ideas. Sometimes the Old Testament will use a word like wickedness, or it'll use a word like evil. All these different ideas capture this issue of sin. We see it in the New Testament. The Bible uses words like rebellion or corruption or violation or lawlessness or transgression, right? And all of them conjure up different feelings, different thoughts. And then Paul says that we're all under sin. Almost like sin is a person, a wrestler, 
And she's ready to pin her opponent to the mat. That's what the word is capturing there. This idea of being under this power of sin. So we see this with Paul as he's trying to do it, read and talk about it. And then he breaks into this idea that no one is righteous. Not even one. No one escapes it. Now what he's not saying is that nobody can do good. Certainly we have moms here that have done good for their children. Or we have dads here that have done good for their families. Or we have individuals here, singles, that are doing good in their families and extended families, right? We, we know that people can do good. We know that you don't even have to be a believer to do good. That non-believers can do good. What Paul is trying to do is rip this back further and point us to the real issue that we've talked about. When it comes to thinking about God, no one is righteous. No one does good. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. And that is what becomes so powerful about his statement. And of course, you can see here, what Paul does is he is quoting the Old Testament, right? The the whole section here is Paul quoting the Old Testament, trying to describe these different things. So, as we look at this, doesn't help us necessarily to look at all the ways the Bible uses sin. It feels a little abstract, doesn't it? It feels a little bit out there. Could we just be honest this morning? I mean, just really brutally honest. I, I'll just speak for myself, am a bundle of contradictions and inconsistencies. A bundle. There's times when I have great faith and I could believe God to move mountains. And then there's times when I doubt. And what's amazing about me is that the time frame isn't always that far apart. I can have great faith and a moment later, God, where are you? I can be filled with hope one moment and discouraged the next. I can love somebody and I can hate people. I can think good things and I can think terrible things. And if I shared them with you, you'd say, we got to get a new pastor. I got attitudes that are really good. And I got attitudes that stink. I'm ashamed of. I can feel bad about feeling good. And I can feel guilty about not feeling guilty. (laughs) I am a bundle of contradictions and inconsistencies. Let me give you a little picture of this, a visual. Last night, I'm praying, I'm playing, I'm playing, not praying. I probably should have been praying, but I was playing my son's uh, kids. And so we were in their living room and we were playing with all these toys. Now, when mom's away and grandpa's present, like anything can happen. 
I should have taken a picture. There were toys scattered all over the room. I mean, everywhere. And eventually it came time, bedtime, right? Now, whoever came up with the idea of a toy box is genius. Now, I know there's some parents here that have a little bit of OCD. Everything has a place and everything should be in its place, right? A toy box just throws that away, doesn't it? You just pile it all into one big box. And then you close that box. And the room is magically clean. My life is that toy box. I got toys that are still there from years ago. And I just cram them into this box. And I try to keep the top closed. I'm a wreck. I am a wreck. But isn't that what the Apostle Paul said? And we're going to study it in the spring when we get to Romans. He says, I am a wretched man. That's sin. That's sin. Now, unless you think I'm the only one that's bad, don't think that you're not a toy box full of contradictions and inconsistencies. Because what God wants you to know is that's the status of every human being. A Jewish writer, he said this, the devil is wildly optimistic if he thinks he can make human beings worse than they are. I do a pretty good job on my own. So what makes life so difficult, so complicated, so messy? Why are relationships so twisted? Why is marriage so doggone hard? God's reminding us that we're all, all under the power of sin. It's a terrible, terrible spot to be. So as we look at this, let me see if I can say it a little differently, is that sin is always, ultimately, against God. Sin, however you want to talk about it, whether you want to talk about it as evil or wickedness or rebellion, missing the mark, all of these phrases, it's universal. It goes everywhere. No one escapes it. No one is outside of it. And then sin is pervasive. When I say pervasive, I'm talking about that sin, it, it, it goes down into the thoughts and attitudes, judgments of every human heart. On my best days, thinking my best thoughts, they're tainted. That's what it means by pervasive. I'm not alone in this. Yours are the same. It's not only that it touches human beings. 
It spreads. It's pervasive throughout the whole world. The creation is just groaning to escape the power of sin. It touches the animal world. It touches everything in creation. Nothing is outside of the pervasiveness of sin. And that's where it goes. It's always, though, ultimately against God. So as we look at what Paul wrote, he tried to capture sin. And the way he did it was he wanted to use just different scriptures out of the Old Testament. He he grabbed out of the book of Psalms. He grabbed from Ecclesiastes. He grabbed from Isaiah. And he said their throat is an open grave. It brings death. He's talking about the things we say. How many reckless words have we said? How many times have you been in a fight with your brother or your sister, your mom or your dad, your husband or your wife, and these words just come gushing out? And they crush the people you love. He uses the idea of tongues to deceive. We deceive people. We lie to people. We betray people. The venom of asp is under their lips. Notice he's using throat, tongues, lips. And he's talking about it as a poison. And he's talking about just one aspect of our lives. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. It's a terrible thing. It's terrible. And then he goes on to another description. Gets away from the mouth and he says their feet... He's talking about our actions. It's not only the things we say, it's the things we do. We're swift. Swift to hurt people. Murder isn't just killing the body. It's an attitude of the heart and how destructive we can be. And you can't even try to describe all of this without finally just being weary of the place that we are. Their past. In other words, their, their pattern of living he's talking about. It's, it's all about ruin and misery. And then he says, the way of peace. Their best attempts. They have not known what real peace is all about. And then he gives us a summary statement. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And isn't that the truth? We live life as if there is no God. And that's what Paul is trying to dispel. As he's writing to a church in Rome 2,000 years ago, he might as well have been writing to a church in West Dundee in 2021. Because he's trying to tell us straight up that God's been at work, but there's a real human condition that no one escapes. And God wanted to address every detail of it. Well, that presses us into my second point, and that is this, that all people are accountable to God. Just pause with that for a moment. He's telling us that all of us are guilty. 
All of us are condemned, and every one of us will give an account to God. So let's take a look at how he does this. Let's go back into verses 19 and 20. He says, now we know that whatever the law says. Now when we see the word law, Paul uses the word law in several different ways. Sometimes when he uses the word law, he's just talking about the first five books of the Old Testament, what we call the Pentateuch. Some people call it the Torah. But sometimes the Torah is actually a reference to the whole entire Old Testament. Now, how do you know? Well, you usually know which way Paul's using this word by the context. And so what makes the most sense here is that when he uses the word law, he's talking about the entire Old Testament. He's not trying to limit it. He's trying to say that whatever the Old Testament says, it says to those who are under the Old Testament, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world would be accountable to God. That's what the Old Testament is. Now, this is a personal God who loves people, but he wants you and me to understand who he is and what he's doing in the world and his purpose. That's why I think we need to hold our whole scripture together, holding the Old Testament with the New Testament, because the Old Testament points to the New Testament, and the New Testament helps us understand better the Old Testament. And so all of it is bringing us to this place where this personal holy God is a good, good God, and he's going to hold us accountable to this. Now, when we talk about this, we've already seen, but let me just sum it maybe this way, first of all, is that the law brings knowledge of sin. That's at the end of verse 20. But it's not the forgiveness of sin. It can't bring that. It can point us to our need. And that's what happens over and over again, and we will be accountable. So back in chapter 2, when we were studying this, the Apostle Paul said this, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath. This is God bringing judgment against the stuff that we're about. And then he says there's a day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This is why I say over and over, Jesus is the king and he's the judge. And he's going to judge every one of us. No one escapes it. That's what it means to be accountable. It's not only Paul that wrote about this, Luke wrote about this. In Acts chapter 17, he said, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, turn away from our sin. Look what he says. He says he has a fixed day. A day is coming. And when people have no fear of God, they have no concern that the day is coming. He will judge the world in righteousness. Remember that picture in the Old Testament, Isaiah? He gets a glimpse into heaven and he sees this one. And all he does is listen to the angels crying out, holy, holy, holy is this God. You know why he said holy? 
three times? Not because he stuttered. It's because he wanted to clarify and communicate, make the point with an exclamation, bold it, underline it, make it scream with larger font, this God we worship is not like us. He is righteous. He is pure. He is clean. He is holy. And all Isaiah could do is cry out, I am a man of unclean lips. Remember the man who walked into the temple in Luke chapter 18? Do you remember what he did? He wouldn't even look to heaven. He just starts beating his breast and he cries out, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Wow. See, that's where the Bible's going and, 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 and there's judgment that's coming. But let's be really clear. Not only did Paul say something, not only did Luke say something, the Apostle John wrote this in the book of Revelation. Let me just read it. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them. Everything's going to be cleared away. And you are going to stand before a holy God. And you will give an account for every reckless word, every careless attitude, everything you failed to address. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. He's talking about everybody that's ever lived. And the books were opened. You know those thoughts you had this morning? You don't have to tell me. They're written down. And there's a God that knows. Oh, you may hide it, and you may come into this place smiling as if your life's all that. But we know, you know, and God knows. You're a wreck. And so am I. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books. Every careless word, every thought, every attitude, every action, it's all there. And then he goes on, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, and this is called the second death. People are going to end up in one of two places. They'll either spend eternity apart from God or you spend eternity with God. Only two options. Nobody escapes it. I'm shooting straight with you now. The world may say it. They may cover it a different way, cover it however they want. But that's the reality of what the Bible teaches. Now, what do we do? What do we say? Like, I'm kind of depressed right now. <laughs> just saying now if you're like me you try to blame people you ever blame somebody for your dumb things you ever blame someone because you don't want to own it of course you have you ever try to deflect something you know what deflection is right 
It's where you you just, it wasn't that bad. Or it wasn't me. It was something else. Or you diminish it. Or you deny it. Remember in the garden? Adam and Eve? What did Adam do? He tried to deflect it. It was the woman. Tried to blame. Push it away. Never the solution. It'll destroy your marriage. It'll undermine your relationships. It'll tear apart families. It'll lead to divorce. It will destroy you. The good news is that there's somebody that has interposed, as we sang in our first song, His blood between a holy God and us as sinful people. We're going to go to a time of communion now. Appropriate, isn't it? That there's good news, there's hope. And let me tell you something, while I've talked about all of us being under sin... The Bible in the New Testament never, never, never calls you a sinner. The Bible in the New Testament calls you a saint. For men and women, people that have put their trust in Christ, Jesus says, I'm going to put my blood between the wrath of God and your sin. And I'm going to fill your heart with hope. So yes, there's a sin problem. There's a sin solution. But now I want to share one more warning. Just one more. There's a growing trend among Christians that now believe that Jesus is not the only way. 70% now say that there's other ways to get to God. If you believe that, you got a real problem with Jesus and His claim. Because Jesus made the claim, and I don't care what the world says, I don't care what is popular out there, Jesus said this. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one. Do you know what no one means? No one. No exceptions. No one gets to the Father but through me. There's no other name, it says in Acts by which people can be delivered from their sin. I'm going to ask the band to come out. I just want to take a moment. If you're here this morning and you have never put your trust in Jesus Christ, you have never let Him interpose His blood between the wrath of God and your toy box, that bundle of contradictions and inconsistencies, Here's what you do. You just say, God, I'm a sinner. You don't deflect. You don't blame. You don't deny. You don't diminish. 
Just own it. And Jesus says, I'll take care of that for you. You do it by prayer. Just pouring out your heart to God and God will hear you. And he'll deliver you from the wrath. And he'll write your name down in the second book, the book of life. There's one judgment, one, when Jesus returns. That great white throne judgment. So as you take the bread this morning, this was a picture of the Passover meal. Jesus then said, this is my body broken for all the toys in your toy box. As often as you eat this, do this in remembrance of me. Let's take it together. And then Jesus took the cup. And he held the cup and he gave a blessing. And he said, this is a cup of my blood to establish a new covenant, a new way of relating to God. This cup will wash away all your sin. So when I use the concept of a toy box, just trying to give us a picture, but let's not use it to diminish in any way the danger of sin and that it was one person who is fully God and fully man who hung on a cross and took your stuff on you. It was so bad. It was so bad. He cried out on that cross and he said, God, why have you forsaken me? And that's when he took your toy box and everything in it upon himself to cleanse you so that you could now be called a saint. Let's take it together. Father, we could never have come up with such a creative, genius plan. You are a great God that loves people, and we rejoice in that, that you took us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. Let us never forget it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.